0: Good afternoon, and welcome to today's CME activity. There is no commercial support. The speaker and planners have disclosed no relevant financial relationships with any commercial okay, You will receive a SurveyMonkey Monkey link after today's activity. If you are viewing online, the evaluation link will be listed in the chat section. And if you're watching after the fact, you will find it in the description section of the video. It is my pleasure to introduce Dr. Hadia Aman. She was born and raised in Atlanta, Georgia, and attended medical school at Morehouse School of Medicine. She is planning to stay with NGHS after her residency program is finished. She enjoys spending time with her family and dogs. Join me in welcoming Dr. Ahmad. Hi, everyone. Um, So for today's Grand Rounds, I'm going to be presenting on resistant hypertension and looking at new approaches to treatment. I have new disclosures. As far as our objectives for today, we're going to first start by defining what is resistant hypertension. We'll then look um, understand the role of both endothelin and aldosterone when it comes to the pathophysiology of hypertension. And recognize the endothelin pathway is a potential new target when it comes to treatment. And then look at current research investigating both endothelin receptor antagonists as well as aldosterone. Algals grown when it comes to the treatment of hypertension. To start, um, the American College of Cardiology and the American Heart Association guidelines per a define hypertension as a systolic of 130 um, or greater or a diastolic of 80 or greater. And this is going to be based on at least two different readings that are obtained on two separate occasions. It is the leading cause of cardiovascular disease and death, and it costs the U.S. healthcare system approximately $131 billion on an annual basis. Now, this whole sheet right here is just going to look at um, different blood pressure thresholds and what the recommendations are for treatment and follow-up. So to start, um, a normal blood pressure is going to be as a systolic of 120 or less and diastolic of 80 or less. And at this point, you just monitor your patients on an annual basis. Elevated blood pressure is going to be when your systolic is 120 to 129, but you still have a normal diastolic pressure. At this point, you'll just recommend um, continuing with lifestyle modifications and then reassess your patient every three to six months. Stage one hypertension is when your um, diastolic starts going to the 130, 139 range, or if the solid goes to the 130 to 139 range and your diastolic is 80 to 89. Um, the next step for these patients is actually to calculate the risk for cardiovascular disease. If their risk is less than 10%, you'll just continue with lifestyle modifications and then reassess them in a few months down the road. But if they have a risk of 10% or greater, this is when you're going to start initiating medications along with your lifestyle modifications, And then you'll reassess them in one month and continue to make um, any adjustments. Now, this is going to be very similar to what you'll do for those with stage two hypertension. Um, and those are going to be folks with a systolic greater than 140 or a diastolic greater um, than 90. When it comes to hypertension, the, uh, pathophysiology, it's fairly complex, there's multiple pathways involved, um, so these are just some of the things that are going to affect your blood pressure, so you can have an increase um, in your uh, activity of the renin and system, and the dysfunction, elevated sympathetic tone, as well as various genetic and environmental factors. This figure we pulled from a journal, again, you can see it's very complex. Multiple organ systems are involved, um, multiple pathways are involved. So you can see there's renin angiotensin, aldosterone, various genetic environmental factors, pH, hypoxia, Um, all these things can affect your blood pressure, as well as other items that basically affect your total peripheral resistance. So, for today's discussion, we're going to kind of focus on the ones that are in the red boxes, so aldosterone and endothelin, and look at how they may uh, potentially play a role when it comes to treatment in resistant hypertension. So, what is resistant hypertension? Um, this is going to be defined as a blood pressure that is still above goal despite being on three different antihypertensive medications. They have to be at their maximally tolerated doses, and a diuretic must be part of the regimen. Whether it's thiazide or loop, kind of just dependent on the patient's renal function. Um, Apart from a diuretic, the two other medications that are typically used are going to be um, either an ACE inhibitor or an uh, aldosterone or angiotensin receptor blocker, as well as a calcium channel blocker. The other definition for resistant hypertension is going to be a blood pressure that is at goal, but it's requiring four or more medications. There's a prevalence of about two to 10% in the general population, but this increases to 40% uh, in patients that have underlying renal disease. There's associated risk of stroke, um, heart failure, MI, or death, basically any type of end organ dysfunction. Some of the risk factors are going to be older age, obesity, CKD, diabetes, and being of African American race. Now, prior to officially diagnosing patients with resistant hypertension, it's very important that we as clinicians take time to rule out um, things such as pseudo resistance, uh, secondary causes, or anything that, um, or other reversible causes. So this algorithm is a little bit difficult to see, but this is from up to date, but basically where you'll start is you know, you have a patient that's on the three drug regimen, their um, blood pressure is still running on the higher side. The next thing that will do is actually ensure that they are adherent um, to their medication regimen. So if they're not adherent try to mitigate any barriers, but that's going to lead to more pseudo-resistance. Now, if they're taking their medications as prescribed, the next thing to do is ambulatory blood pressure monitoring. So um, if their blood pressure is normal at home but elevated in the office, that could kind of lead you more towards um, white coat hypertension. So again, we're in the pseudo-resistant category. Now, if blood pressure is still elevated at home, the next thing that you will do is ensure that, again, they're on that appropriate three drug regimen of um, ACE inhibitor, ARB, uh, calcium channel blocker, as well as a an auretic, and then ensure that they're at their maximally tolerated dose. And if they're still having elevated blood pressure, then you're going to push to more of a workout for your secondary causes. In this flow sheet is kind of going through the same thing. So you have your resistant um hypertension readings. You exclude any pseudo-resistance. You so look at any um, modifiable factor or anything that could um, also elevate your blood pressure. So things such as physical inactivity, they're taking NSAIDs, anything else that could increase their blood pressure. Now, if they're still hypertensive, then you start again looking for your secondary. Causes, whether it's something like PEO, OSA, um, and then you start working on other pharmacologic treatments, which we'll kind of discuss, I believe, on the next slide. And if they are still elevated at that point, you'll typically refer them to a specialist. As far as current treatment guidelines when it comes to resistant hypertension, um, you'll still continue with your lifestyle modifications, so diet, weight loss, exercise. The next medication that's typically added is an aldosterone receptor antagonist, and this is kind of based off a trial that they did um, several years ago called the Pathway Two trial, which looked at, I believe, uh, valsulol, uh, doxazosin, and spironolactone, and spironolactone was the one that uh, decreased blood pressure the most out of those three uh, drugs. And the thought was that a lot of the um, patients that do have resistant hypertension and do have elevated aldosterone levels. Um, so that's why I did make this medication work the best. Now, if your patients are intolerant to um, aldosterone receptor antagonists, you can use other medications such as vasodilators, so hydrolysine, your alpha blockers, or something like quantidine. And then this diagram again, just going into. There's multiple medications targeting different pathways, and this one's particularly looking at your um, renin and angiotensin and aldosterone system. So for today's uh, discussion, since we're focusing on system hypertension, um, again, there's multiple pathways involved, so there's multiple targets for any medications. So we'll be looking at two different trials. One is uh, Precision, and the other one is Brighton. And these are gonna be looking at two new medications um, that are in like clinical trial phase that could potentially be used for um, for resistant hypertension. So precision is gonna be looking at prostatentin, which is a dual endothelium receptor antagonist, and Brighton is gonna be looking at bastroc, which is an aldosterone synthase inhibitor. Now, before we get into the precision problem, it's gonna go into a little bit of background. Endothelin, because I feel like um, I personally wasn't as familiar uh, with it before I kind of read on this topic. But basically, this is a peptide that's produced by endothelium. Typically produced in response to things such as hypoxia, stress, um, inflammatory cytokines. It is a fairly potent. I think it's like one of the most potent vasoconstrictors. And then it regulates vascular tone, it can induce hypertrophy of myocytes, and it can lead to fibrosis. Endothelin can also lead to endothelial dysfunction as well as vascular and cardiac remodeling. It can um, contribute to regulation of sodium and water in the kidney, and it can also stimulate aldosterone synthesis and catapulting release. All in all, we can see how endothelialin could potentially play a role in um, increasing blood pressure. Now um, that's two receptors that have been identified, uh, the A and B receptor. The A receptors are going to be located on vascular smooth muscle cells as well as atrial and ventricular myocardium. It mediates cellular proliferation, growth, vasoconstriction and and all these kind of lead to those adverse vascular effects. Now, the B receptors, on the other hand, are mostly found on the vascular endothelial cells, and these actually result in uh, vasodilatation, as well as clearance of endothelial 1, which is going to be the most active isoform of endothelial. And then it's also expressed in the medulla of the kidney and can, again, help with sodium and water regulation. So all in all, it seems like the B-receptor kind of counteracts everything that the A-receptor does, however, um, these B-receptors can also be present on smooth muscle cells and have very similar effects to the endothelial A-receptors. And again, this diagram is just showing that just dependent on where those B receptors are, it can have different, um, different functions. And the B receptors can either go into the muscle cells or the uh, endothelial cells. So far, we have made um, several drugs that have been targeting um, these receptors. So there's two classes, so far when it comes to the endothelium receptors, either they're selected for the endothelium A receptor or they um, are dual antagonists and act on both the A and B receptor. So far, they're mostly used um, for the treatment of group one pulmonary hypertension, and uh, it also has some studies in rodents that have shown that blue blockade actually has a lower risk of hypertension, which is going to be one of the most common side effects of these medications. So, um, so selective antagonism of these A receptors has led to um, overstimulation of the B receptors that can cause visibilitation and vasopressinones. Now, as far as studies when it comes to resistant hypertension, I think they've actually looked at a couple drugs um, from this class. So, Bosentin and Drucentin have been studied in the past to kind of see if they have any efficacy. Lowering blood pressure in patients that have resistant hypertension. However, with both I think that ended up um, being discontinued just because it had very severe hypatoxic effects. And then with Derusenten, um, that was actually abandoned after they did a confirmatory study and it failed to show that it actually reduced blood pressure and actually had higher rates of um, fluid retention with edema. Kind of um, like previously discussed edema, fluid retention. LFTs um, have, often have uh, seen this particular class of medication and in yeah, animal studies have actually seen some dreaded effects. So the precision trial is going to be looking at this new medication, which is a prosatentin. Um, this one is going to be a dual antagonist, so it acts on both the A and the B receptor. It's actually an active metabolite of a previous drug that was used for pulmonary hypertension. And I think it's of interest now just because it's not um, showing some of the similar side effects to the other medications. So they didn't really see a lot of hepatotoxicity. And then it's also favorable because it has a synergistic effect with some other medications currently used for hypertension. Okay. So to start, um, the precision trial. This is um, that stands for parallel group, phase three study, looking at prospentin in subjects that have resistant hypertension. This was a multi-center, blinded, randomized parallel group uh, phase three study that took place at multiple centers, pretty much on every continent. Um, From 2018 to 2022, and again, it was just trying to see if dual antagonism of the endothelin receptor could lower blood pressure in those with resistant hypertension. So the inclusion criteria: so um, these patients uh, that were included, male or female, over 18, they had to have a history of uncontrolled blood pressure despite being on three antihypertensive medications within the past year, um, treated with at least three antihypertensive agents of different classes for at least four weeks before they did their initial screening. They had to have a systolic of 140 or greater measured by ambulatory blood pressure monitoring. And they did allow um, women of childbearing potential, the only thing is they were pretty strict on um, ensuring that they took their pregnancy tests. As far as the exclusion criteria, so anyone with pseudoresistance, and then anyone with severe hypertension, which they defined as a systolic of one eighty or greater or a diastolic of one ten or greater, any pregnant patients, anyone that had underlying uh, cardiac or severe renal insufficiency or um, any factor that might put the subject at risk or interfere with treatment compliance or the interpretation results and then they also excluded um, patients that were being treated with other medications which could affect their blood pressure. The initial total number of eligible, uh, eligible patients was a little under 2,000. And these patients were then placed on a fixed combination agent that included um, amylopine, posardium, and hydroxychloroquine at different doses. They did this for a four week period. After this they then added a placebo for an additional four weeks just to see if there were patients that were simply responding to uh, the placebo alone. And after all that, they were left with a total of 730 patients that did actually end up meeting criteria for resistant hypertension who were then randomized. And then this um, the patients were have kind of um continued on this drug regimen throughout the study. So going from 2000 to 730 shows that there were quite a few that actually met you know criteria for you know, pseudo resistance at that point. The next part of the study um, was essentially three different parts. So, part one was a four-week double-blind, randomized, uh, placebo-controlled part where patients either received um, prostatentin at a 12.5 milligram dose, 25 milligram dose, or placebo. The second part, um, pretty much all the patients ended up receiving the medication at the 25 milligram dose, and then part. Uh, three was like a withdrawal period where, um, again, it was double blind, randomized, placebo controlled, where patients were either receiving the 25 milligram dose of the medication or placebo. And this diagram is just kind of going through how um, those steps went. And this is just, again, kind of showing like the patient, the number that participated in each part of the trial. And the reasons that they may have uh, discontinued the trial. So, all in all, I think from the 730 that they had to start with, a total of 577 actually completed the entire trial. And some of the reasons that um, they discontinued treatment was either they were having adverse effects, um, pregnancy, or um, they were lost to follow up, or they just patients didn't really see a difference. So, they withdrew from the trial. When it comes to the endpoints, the primary um, endpoint that they were looking at was a change in the mean um, sitting office solid from baseline to week four. So that's going to be that part one of the trial. And then some of the secondary um, endpoints that they looked at were a change in the sitting office solid during part three, looking at the change in the sitting office thigh during part one and part three of the trial. And then looking at um, 24 hours to solid and diastolic blood pressure um, via ambulatory blood pressure monitoring during part one and part three. So these are the results. So all in all, you can see during that uh, initial four-week phase part one, um, pretty much everyone across the board Dropped whether a placebo or um, those receiving a placebo but the decrease was a little bit more significant in those on the medication. And then once we hit part two of the trial, where even those that were initially receiving placebo were started on the medication, there's a solid drop as well. And then part three is where um, where they actually withdrew the medication. So half remain on placebo attention. At 25 milligrams, which is going to be the red, and then blue is the placebo. So you can see once they took the medication away, um, systolic began to rise again, and those that remained on the medication essentially um, their systolic was several points lower. And this is going to be the diastolic finding. So very, very similar all in all. So I think um, in part one, when they look at the systolic and diastolic in office, the Blood pressure dropped by, I believe, about four to five points um, compared to placebo. And then in the withdrawal period, um, the blood pressure actually increased about six points for the systolic and seven for the diastolic in the office setting. So, all in all, um, these researchers pretty much took this as that uh, there was a significant decrease in blood pressure with patients being on this medication. This can be a little bit difficult to read, but this is going to be a forest plot of doing a subgroup analysis. And basically anything that is um, going to be left of the uh little dashed line is favoring the medication, pretty much almost all of them, um, all the different subgroups looking at BMI, race, age, well, the majority were actually favoring being on the precipitant. Um, and to adverse events. Um, overall, the drug was fairly well tolerated. Some of the things that they did see were, as expected, uh, edema or fluid retention. And I think that got up to 18% in those taking the 25 milligram dose. Um, but overall, pretty low um, when it came to any type of hepatotoxicity. And then they did see what they thought was anemia or either um, hemodilution, which they were thinking may be a result of the edema. So all in all, for this particular trial, it's pretty unique because it did take several steps to rule out patients with pseudo hypertension. That kind of shows us that even in the outpatient setting, we may have to deal a little bit more with um, our patients from to make sure that they actually meet criteria for for resistance. Um, Overall, the drug was well tolerated and superior to placebo when it came to um, lowering blood pressure, and it had a sustained effect. At week 40, the treatment effect of prostitentin was fairly consistent across um, the various subgroups, including age, sex, BMI, race, and geographic area, and all in all, this is just going to provide um, more information on potential use of prostitentin or different uh, drug classes as add-on therapy um, to those that are meeting criteria for resistance. Now, some additional considerations. So, all the researchers are focusing on this particular um, class of drugs as add-on therapy. There are other medications that are still under investigation. And as I mentioned earlier, elevated aldosterone levels are thought to play a pretty significant role in patients that do have resistant hypertension. Making um, MRAs an ideal add-on medication. So, as of yet, there aren't any. Head to head trials against both of these medications because, again, the endoglobin receptor and tightness do have some effect when it comes to aldosterone. But overall, the um, renin, angiotensin, and aldosterone system is still going to be an uh, area of interest when it comes to new medications. And that is where we come to the uh, Brighton trial. So, this one is actually investigating uh, BaxterSat, and this is going to be an aldosterone synthase inhibitor. Aldosterone synthesis is going to control the synthesis of aldosterone, which again has been a target for hypertension treatment as um uh, and it's been um, evaluated in use phase one clinical trials So just some background, I know we're a little bit more familiar with aldosterone when it comes uh, to hypertension as opposed to endothelin, but Essentially, functions by um, increasing sodium reabsorption, leading to passive water reabsorption, which um, is going to lead to higher blood pressures. And as I mentioned earlier, there was this pathway two trial several years ago that showed that um, spermolactone was pretty effective when it came to treating resistant hypertension. And this, again, is going to support the concept that high sodium intake and elevated levels of aldosterone can lead to treatment resistance. So, when it comes to the aldosterone pathway and pasture this is going to be um, a drug that decreases levels of aldosterone by inhibiting this CYP11D2 enzyme, and it's actually very selective for this enzyme, which is important um, because this enzyme is fairly from, uh, similar in properties to CYP11D1, which is um, 11 beta hydroxylase. And that's the final enzyme needed in the cortisol synthesis pathway, so we wouldn't want to um, inhibit that that pathway while trying to target aldosterone. Now with this trial, it's a multi-center randomized, double-blind, placebo-controlled, parallel group uh, dose-ranging trial, and it had an adaptive design. Patients were either going to receive through three different doses of astrostat Um, 0.5, 1 milligram, or 2 milligram, and they um, were either placebo, and then they were on this medication daily for approximately 12 weeks. Initially, they started with a little under 800 patients, and then after going through the initial run in period, 275 were ultimately randomized to the medications and um, went through with the trial. The inclusion criteria for this um, trial were men and women over the age of 18. They had to be receiving stable doses of at least three antihypertensive medications, again, one of which had to be a diuretic. Now, if patients were already on a um, mineralocorticoid receptor antagonist or fast diuretic. They had to discontinue these agents approximately four weeks before undergoing randomization. They had to have a blood pressure of at least 130 over 80 or higher while seated. And then the blood pressure was determined as an average of three measurements obtained using an automated in office blood pressure monitor. Mm-hmm. This trial and is excluding criteria. Again, anyone with <coughs> elevated blood pressure is very similar to precision so, um, a precision trial. So if their systolic was 180 or greater, or the diastolic was 110 or greater, they were excluded from the trial if they had a GFR less than 45 or uncontrolled diabetes. Now, the endpoints for this trial the primary FC endpoint was a change in the mean seated systolic blood pressure from baseline to the end of the 12 week. Um, in each batch of that group as compared to placebo. The secondary endpoints we're going to be looking at the mean seated diastolic blood pressure and percentage of patients with a seated blood pressure of less than 130 or 80 at the end of the 12 weeks. And then they look at some safety um, endpoints such as hyperkalemia, hyponatremia, hypotension. So, the results from this one um, with the placebo group, you can see like a a nine point drop when it comes to systolic. And it seems to be more dose dependent with this particular medication. There was a 12 point drop with the 0.5 milligram dose, um, a 17 and a 20 point drop with the 1 milligram and 2 milligram doses um, in systolic blood pressure. And then with the diastolic, there was a 9 point drop with placebo, around an 8.6 with a 0.5 milligram, and then 11 and 14 um, drop when it came to one milligram and two milligram dosing. So apart from the 0.5 milligram dose of medication, um, overall there was a significant drop when it came to diastolic and systolic blood pressure on this particular medication. So as far as any adverse effects, overall investigators deemed that there weren't any serious adverse events when it came to those taking the medication. Um, but apart from that, hyponatremia, hypotension, and elevated potassium we were not seen on a majority of patients. Very, very few. So overall, again, very well tolerated. So with this particular trial, um, again, there wasn't really an assessment of benefits or risk beyond that 12-week point, um, and there weren't really any comparisons that any other of the anti-hypertensive medications. Um, Having an exclusion criteria where the GFR had to be greater than 45, they reduced the risk of hyperkalemia. And then in adults sure. with treatment resistant hypertension, um, again, aldosterone synthase condition with this medication at a dose of one milligram or two milligram daily led to a significantly greater reduction when it came to solid blood pressure over that 12 week period compared to placebo. Well, all in all, um, just a reminder that resistant hypertension can have long term adverse cardiovascular effects, can lead to endorphin damage. It has very um, complex pathophysiology and the pathogenesis in most various pathways. So, um, the endothelial pathway and inhibition of aldosterone synthase are under investigation as potential targets when it comes, for, uh, when it comes to medical therapy. And then we still need further studies. To determine which is the safest and most effective way when to treating those that truly have persistent hypertension. So I just want to say thank you to Dr. Johnson for helping this presentation. May I ask a question? Yes, Okay, the question is that, that there've been many studies that show that those people who have malignant hypertension, this above 190, and are treated with medication that lowers them to 140. Half of those patients, fully half of them, don't take their medicine. And, and that's one of the reasons all these great new drugs, if you're not taking them, they don't work. And, and that's been led to uh, some research, renewed research of what um, uh, the de- innervating the kidneys by a, a um, basic treatment that uses radioablation on the renal arteries. So, that, and that, that's in response to the fact that these proven medicines have been phenomenal, but the patients just don't take them. So, I haven't procedure not proceeded before, but again, I know that's been an issue, even with. Those being diagnosed with resistant hypertension, a lot of them ended up being excluded because there was some component of um, treatment adherence and. Although I totally understand your point, but I wasn't actually familiar with that procedure. Yeah. So yeah, so they do renal you know, um, innovation therapy, and so that's actually becoming very <laughs> popular for a lot of different things. Is basically they knock out the nerves to, you know, basically see if it improves treatment. We're seeing that in congestive heart failure too, uh, as an upcoming therapy. Um, so in a lot of different fields, they're trying that. But I think you know the less invasive approach still remains medication. But definitely, you know, if patients I'll aren't I'll taking the medicine, those. So. You know, it, it's tough to yeah. see you know if the medicine's effective. If you were researching this topic, did you see that they, there were any other upcoming studies having a longer or longer duration of the back to I haven't seen yet. Um, they're posted, and they post This is actually, I think, the second trial of back medications. So I've seen a previous trial, but I'm not sure if there's any upcoming with, with this one. But I imagine that they would, because they wanted to see again, if there was <laughs> a staying back after that whole period. Uh, yeah, so for these trials kind of assuming that the other antihypertensive classes like hidralazine, clonidine, sporadolactone as well, that, that they aren't as effective as it want. so these will kind of become the new fourth option. I think that's kind of what they're aiming towards, um, especially <coughs> with the because um, it does have a little bit of that aldosterone effect, but it's just, again, another potential target if those medications just essentially have another option. But with the that it's affecting that aldosterone pathway, which I think based on previous trials, they think actually playing a major role in those that have resistant hypertension. So they can just focus on the aldosterone and have other options out there. I think that's why they're kind of targeting um, those in addition to some of the other MRAs that are out there. Mm-hmm. And are these phase three or are these trucks available yet? They're not available in phase two. Phase three. So, Precision was phase three, Brighton is phase two. <laughs> so, uh, very good job, and uh, happy. Thank you, Residence Day, everyone. Today's the real day. So, thanks for that. Thank uh, me very proud. So, uh, the one thing that I'm kind of feeling after listening to your talk and seeing all the pathways is uh, I Feel like we're headed towards again, like in chemo uh, precision medicine, right? And so, am I correct in assuming that this is kind of like another precision medicine sort of thing that we're like we're trying to identify patients who have this resistant hypertension, may have an endothelial mechanism of action, and we should be trying to look for them. But before we get to that, we should make sure we've uh excluded other classes right and yeah. so that's kind of what i'm taking away from it yeah. it's just, when i go back to my practice in the part two i'll try and look harder at those people who are not you know, controlled but maybe look back and make sure we've got some of those other classes covered like diuretics and uh, calcium calories and things so, mm-hmm. so that would be the right way to go
1: Essentially,
0: yes, at least to start with, before again, um, kind of that up to date pathway, those good drugs are typically the ones that you want to have them on before going down the rest of the pathway, and ensuring again that they're the maximally tolerated dose before um, labeling patients as for well the center retention. But those are kind of the three drugs that have been recommended so far. I know, like, uh, when you take your boards, uh, they always say don't go after renal stenosis until you've had like three or four drug therapies so so I think this is sort of in that same category right um, I mean, people who've exhausted three or four drugs now we should think about it. new platforms other factors any comments thank you Dr. Ramadan